Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. A couple months ago, I received a direct message in my social media inbox after I tweeted out something that was a little bit controversial, and I won't get into that today. We'll save that for another time. But I, I, I tweeted this out, and an old friend of mine from childhood, I had, we'd kind of not really seen each other in many years, and he, he messaged me, and he was very upset with what I'd had to say. And he, and he said, you know, you've changed. And I thought, excuse me? I've changed? And I got very defensive at the statement. Has anybody ever been told you've changed? How did that feel? It feels like an assault on the very DNA of our soul, doesn't it? It feels like something deep inside of me has been touched upon in a way that I don't want messed with. I have not changed, I thought. And then the Lord began to poke on me and say, oh yeah, you have changed. What is it about those those words, you've changed, that we find so offensive? Why is the term you've changed, why is that associated more with an insult than it is an affirmation? Why do we guard so closely this idea of the sanctity of self and our unchanging nature that when someone says you've changed, we bristle? And we say, how dare you? How dare you? You've changed, not me, right? Anybody? Is it just me? I remember in college, me and my friends, we'd actually use it in jest just whenever we were mad at each other for fun. Like, oh, you've changed. You've changed. And we'd insult one another with those words. You've changed. Why do we buck at the words you've changed. Why do we do that? Maybe deep down we have some sense that we're not supposed to change, or maybe there's an even deeper sense that there's something in us that wasn't supposed to change, and maybe we wrongly appropriate that to be ourselves. Why is it that we find this idea of personal change so hard? I want to challenge you this week. I think my point is so true that if we were to go out into the public and and Tell somebody that you didn't know, maybe a stranger off the street, maybe we can record it, get your phone out this week and go up to a total stranger and tell them, hey, you should change and see how that goes. That would be a fun social media reel, wouldn't it? Just go tell people you need to change. That's not a popular thing, is it? Especially today. I mean, the sanctity of self is unbelievable in our day. There is, there is a Puritan commitment to my personal autonomy and the sanctity of my own identity. How dare you tell me I should change? We bristle at the term change when it comes to talking about ourselves, but we're happy for the world to change around us, aren't we? Here's what I want to talk about today. For the people of God, change is actually the goal. Change is the goal. For the real followers of Jesus, we're actually called to change. We're commanded to change. We're compelled to change. We're committed to change. We contend for change because Jesus is a change agent. You cannot follow Jesus and remain the same. You can't. He stays the same. We change. We change into his image. We are made to change from who we are now 
into his likeness, to become like Jesus. Change. I want to talk to you about change. We are in a series we are calling As For Me In My House, and congratulations, you have made it to the end. Yes, here we are. 12 weeks in to an odyssey. It's not a series, it's not a season, it's an odyssey. Where we have been establishing our values. And for those of you who maybe you're just joining us or maybe you're just getting back, we have for the last three months been establishing foundational truths, recognizing that we are in strange times, in an uncharted territory, and that it's important to go back to the basics. Amen? When there's ever disruption in your life or even transition, it's, that's a time for you to make the main thing the main thing and to establish clear foundations and values. And that's what we've been doing as a church for the last three months. And we've been taking our cue from Joshua, the leader of Israel, when they stepped into a new land and a new time. He said, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. It's all kinds of options. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have been looking at what does it mean for us to make a decision, a choice to serve the Lord in our day. And we've talked about everything from the king and the kingdom to mission to be, being peacemakers to honor to being spirit-filled. We talked about generosity. We talked about establishing our lives on the authority of God's word. We've talked about faith. We've talked about unity. We've talked about presence and prayer. We've talked about all these things. And today I want to close it off by raising up a standard in our church and setting it before us as an expectation that as for me and my house, we will endeavor, we will seek, we will aim to become like Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. As for me and my house, let's say it all together. Put it in the chat. Say it at West. Say it at Halifax. As for me and my house, come on, we will become like Jesus. That is our goal. That is what we're after. We are a church that expects and intends to be transformed. We want to become like Jesus. It's a decision to embrace the change, to say, you know what? We are not a finished product. I am not perfect just the way I am. Pretty, pretty, please. But Jesus needs to do a transforming work in me, and my expectation and my conviction is that if I follow Jesus, I am going to be different in this world. I am going to stand out. I'm going to be like an alien, like Peter says. I'm going to be salt of the earth, like Jesus says. I'm going to be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. I am going to stand out because I'm going to be like Jesus. That is the goal. We want to change. And we are a church that expects change. We have a term around here in our code, decidedly different. We fully expect that following Jesus is going to have implications on our lives. It's going to make us look different. The old timers call it holiness. We expect change. As for me and my house, we will become like Jesus. To do this today, I want to study Romans chapter 12 and we just read it, these two verses, and this is a great day to lean forward. It's a great day to open your Bible. It's a great day to mark it up, to circle words, to dig in deep. We're just going to study two of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But before we get into it, it's important that you notice something where it starts. Paul says, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore in the scripture, you ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. 
That's what you do. You, it's, he's connecting it to something. And if you had been reading Romans chapters 1 through 11 in this letter that he wrote to a real people in a real time in the city of Rome who were dealing with massive persecution and adopting their lifestyle according to Jesus, they were changing. Many of them uh, were Jews shifting into now what does it mean to follow Jesus in this kind of new iteration and dispensation. Many, of, many people were seeing, they're starting to see converts from the, the Greek background, from pagan background. So, so Paul sends them this letter of instruction, and he spends the first 11 chapters speaking about the gospel, bringing clarity to the Romans in, in chapters 1 through 11. If you want to get some understanding on the grand scheme of the gospel and what it means, Paul does that in Romans 1 through 11. He gives the deep dive explanation of the gospel and our relationship with God. He talks about how humanity was created by God and creation was created by God and that it was subject to futility through sin. And that sin came in and broke everything because we exchanged the invisible God for, for the creation, the creator for the created, and we, we got worship backwards, and sin became our lot. And sin, because where there's sin, there is death. Paul says, where the wages of sin is death, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he explains our deep need for rescue. And then he says in Romans, he says, but God... While we were yet sinners, but God, who is rich in mercy, looked upon our state. He looked upon you and me in our death, in our sin, in our dysfunction, in our sorrow, in our helplessness. And he became sin. He came into this world. He took on our flesh and he bore our sin and he took our punishment and he died our death and he rose in victory. And Paul says, that's the gospel that Jesus came and he saved us. From the work of the enemy, from sin and death. He defeated the enemy we cannot defeat. And he raised us to new life. And Paul says in Romans 8, one of the most beautiful chapters of all the scripture, he says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are covered by the blood. The blood of Jesus has saved you. It has washed you. It has cleansed you. It has made you a new creation. And he says, that blood is the love of God having been fully expressed. And if God is for us, he said, who can be yeah, therefore there's no condemnation. God is for us. He says, what can separate us from the love of God? Can famine, nakedness, hardship, sword? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is some really, really good news. And he goes on in chapter 10. He says, whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they too will be saved. It's inviting everybody to believe in Jesus and receive salvation. And then he changes the gears. In chapter 12, it goes from a gospel explanation to interpreting it as to what it's going to do in your life. That like, if this is true, then this is going to happen in you. That if you believe this is true, here's what's going to happen next. And chapters 12 through 16 is all about how we live this life on earth, how we engage with one another. Maybe you could put it this way. Romans 1 through 11 deals with the vertical relationship with God. And, and Romans 12 through 16 deals with the horizontal relationship on the earth, how that's expressed through our lives. And he says, therefore... That there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be something that happens. He's saying since Jesus died and since we've, we've claimed that everything's changed, the change is going to start with and in you. That there's where the change is going to happen. I want to give us three insights today 
on what happens because of the gospel, on the change that comes because of the gospel, that if you believe in Jesus, here is the change that's going to affect your life. Here's what it's going to look like. I want to talk about a responsive change, a reproductive change, and a reordered change. Three changes. Change number one is this. Write this down. The gospel of Jesus, first and foremost, Paul says, therefore, first and foremost, demands a changed me. The gospel of Jesus actually demands a changed me. You, you can't stay the same. If this is true, if, if, if it's true, we can't stay the same. We actually have to become like Jesus. That's how intent upon transformation Jesus is. It actually demands a change. Now, there's a, there's a, a lie in our culture, a countercultural claim Maybe we would call it, in Paul's words, a pattern of this world. And it says this, I don't have to change. You do. It tells the world, the world's going to conform to me. I don't have to change. You have to change. Move and accommodate me. This is this idea of, it's a mainstream idea now. This is a mainstream Western ethic. This is who I am. I must stay true to myself. I got to be me. I got to stay real. I got to keep it 100. I don't have to change. You have to change. World, conform to me. Now, we sit here and we nod and we say, yeah, that's true in the world. I mean, we see it. You see it. I mean, you see it in the Olympics. The Olympics are being blown up right now because they don't know what to do with a 260-pound woman, apparently, that's going to win weightlifting. Did you see that? Olympics, accommodate me. I'm a, I was born a man, but now I feel like I'm a woman, and so I'm going to lift weights at, in the women's category and absolutely destroy these poor girls. Is what's going to happen. Oh, is everyone getting uncomfortable already? No, I don't have to change. You change for me. Everybody change for me. This is who I am. Deal with it. And now, this whole lie of accommodation isn't just something that affects the world. It actually affects the church. Not just in the fact that many people are being swept up by that ideology that sounds right, but is actually a lie from the pit of hell and is a wolf in, wolf in sheep's clothing. But beyond that, there is a lie that has affected the church for many, for, for, since, since day one, and it's the lie of licentiousness. The lie that because God came and because Jesus died for me and his sins cover me and I have been set free by the blood of Jesus, we interpret that as he changed for me, therefore it doesn't really matter what I do in my life. Just a sinner saved by grace, right? Anybody? That's in the church. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It doesn't really matter. There's grace for me. It's a good thing. Let's go, get, let's go do this and let's continue in this pattern. It doesn't really matter what I do because grace means I have a license to not change. That's not what grace means. And this is a lie that not only affects the world, but it affects the church. Look what Paul says. Let's break it down. Romans 12. He says, Therefore, so not only is it connected to what he was talking about before, but now it's going to produce an action, right? Therefore, is bridging the gospel. If the gospel is true, what's he saying? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, since he died for you, since he came for you, since he spread, he, he bled his own precious blood for you, in view of God's mercy, offer your body, or another translation says your whole self, 
as a living sacrifice. It looks like I just crossed that out. I didn't cross it out. I'm underlining it. As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper, proper worship. What's he saying? He's saying there's only one appropriate response to a God who loves you this way. It's to love him back. There's only one appropriate response to a God who would give him his whole self for you, and that is this, to give your whole self for him. There is only one response to a God who would offer himself as a sacrifice for you, and that is to offer yourself as a sacrifice to That's the only, he said, that's the true response. Anything else you are pretending and your actions do not line up with the truth you say you believe. They don't line up. There's only, it demands this type of response in light of the fact that he loved me, in light of the fact that he chased me down with reckless abandon, in light of the fact that he shed his precious blood for me, in light of the fact that he hung on a cross for me, in light of those facts, my true and proper worship now is to to give myself wholly to him as he has given himself wholly to me. And anything less actually contradicts what we say we believe. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, I wish I had time to study a little bit more about what that means, the the idea of offering yourself as a living sacrifice and study the sacrificial system and that. But here's all you need to know. Sacrifices are painful. Sacrifices are costly. Sacrifices are uncomfortable. You lay yourself down as a sacrifice and you let God, you give yourself over to God. It's surrender. It's giving He says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. This is the only appropriate response. If the gospel is what the gospel says it is, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he did what he said he did or what it says he did, then this is your true and proper worship. Maybe that's why some of our lives are so not compelling to people who don't believe is because our actions don't line up with what we say we believe. This is your true and proper worship. Anything less is a misappropriation of the blood of Jesus. There's a a term that a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined called cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer said that oftentimes we misappropriate the blood of Jesus as something cheap, that it doesn't really matter. And now that I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, that it doesn't matter what I do. But what, what that is to do is to lessen the value of the precious blood of Jesus. And you live in this way that makes the blood cheap. And look what he says. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's forgiveness with no action. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand. He he contrasts the appropriate response, your true and proper worship. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price by which the merchant will sell all his goods. What's he saying? He's saying when you really see the value of the gospel, it will compel you to go after him with all you have. When you really see how greatly you have been loved, it will compel you to love him back. We love because he first loved us. There is a reciprocity to the gospel. 
there is a response that is appropriate. It demands this response. He says, this is your true and proper act of worship. But it's not just this idea of reciprocity, but there's also this idea of compatibility I want, I want you to see. Notice what he says. Not only do we have to change because it's our only real response. Like you think about, remember that old hymn, um, When I Survey? Isaac Watts wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross, just picture Jesus for a moment. Just close your eyes and picture Jesus for a moment. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, this isn't just some man, some man from Nazareth. It's the Prince of Glory. It's the King of Kings. It says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, there's only one response to that kind of love. You've seen it in your own human relationships. Have you ever done something that cost you a lot for somebody and they didn't re like reciprocate that love and investment? There's only one response. It's, it's, it's reciprocation, but it's also compatibility. Look what he says. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and, and proper worship. But note what he says. Holy and pleasing to God. That, that your life is going to be holy and pleasing to God. Now, and, and he goes further and he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So what's he doing? He's contrasting what your life should be versus what the world is going to try to get you to be. That, that there's going to be two patterns. There's, there's a God pattern or a world pattern, and you can't live according to both. And he's saying, offer yourself holy and pleasing to God. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but offer yourself and become holy and pleasing to God. What's he talking about? Well, well the Bible commands us to be holy. God is holy. And we are commanded to be holy. Look, look at some of these scriptures. Hebrews 12 says, be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Paul says in Corinthians, since we have these promises, dear friends, therefore, there it is again, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of what? Out of reverence for God. Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you think it was just the New Testament writers that said it, no, Jesus himself said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the unapologetic call of the gospel. This is the unapologetic call for anybody who would follow Jesus, is to be made holy, to be made like him. And now some of you think, well, Why? Why does it matter? And if you're like me, you, you start to try to filter everything through, does God need me to be holy? You need to know something. God doesn't need anything from you. Isn't that nice? Take a deep breath. God doesn't need anything from you. Holiness isn't about giving God necessarily what he needs. It's, a, it's an appropriate response. But holiness is actually about God transforming us so we are compatible to be with him. That's what holiness is. Holiness is ultimately about compatibility. Like, like did, you, did you notice, like, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It means you, you actually can't interact with him. And now we could do a whole study about holiness. 
But ultimately, the Bible says God is holy, and here's the best way to understand holy. He is utterly unique. He's utterly unique. He is alone in and of himself. There is no one like him, not as powerful, not as brilliant, not as kind, not as benevolent, not as just, not as righteous. There is no one like him. That's what it means that he's holy. And for you to be with him, you must be like him. And if you read your Old Testament, that's complicated. Because anybody who got near to him died in compatibility. Like, think about it like this. Like, we have a solar system, and there is a sun right in the middle of the solar system, right? And we would say the sun's a good thing, right? Yes? You with me? Hang with me. The sun's a very good thing. It's powerful. It gives life. It gives energy. It gives heat. All those things. We, we would die without the sun. We need it. However, if you get too close to it, what, what else happens? You die. Yeah, because of the power, because of its utter uniqueness. You, you can't get near it. You're not made of sun stuff. And in a similar way, this is how God is in his holiness, that anybody who got near him got consumed. And now the gospel tells us that that holiness, like in Isaiah 6, the, the, the ember from the altar that came across and touched Isaiah, that holiness actually came from heaven and begins to touch God's people and to make us holy and make us like him. But here's the thing, unless you let his touch hit you, and unless you let that burning ember of his holiness touch your life and transform you, you are just going to get burned up by his holiness. It's about being heaven ready. It's about being compatible in his presence. That's what holiness is. Jesus wants to transform you not only because it brings him glory, but it makes you ready to actually spend eternity with him. That's very important. Someone needs to hear that. This is why holiness matters. Because when we step into, into like eternity and we go through the day of judgment, the Bible says that you're going to pass through fire. And what remains is only the things, it's only the gold, it's only the heavenly gold that God brings about in you. Everything else will just burn up and what will be left. This is what Paul is talking about. Very obscure scripture, but this might put it into context. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, talking about the foundation of Christ, the gospel, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of the Lord, will bring it to light. Look what it says. It will be re revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. That's really what holiness is. Holiness is the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a great reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I wish I had time to talk about this, but your reward in heaven is not the same as everybody else's. By grace, you get in. By grace, you have been saved. But you also need to let that grace transform you to make you a heavenly person here and now. It's about getting heaven ready. It's a, it's, it demands this change. Say it like this. Let me, let me just, the gospel demands that we be, be transformed. For Christ's sake, this is your only appropriate response. And for our sake, are you heaven ready? Are you compatible to live in that land? Like, has anybody ever traveled to the third world? You ever go to like Haiti? Uh, whenever I've gone to, to Haiti, Guatemala, anywhere in the third world, I've had to go to the doctor and they just fill me with a bunch of mystery vaccines. I don't know. Whatever, doc. Go for it. Right? To get you ready to be able to be in that environment. 
That's kind of what Jesus wants to do by his grace. He wants to inoculate you so that you have the substance to be in his presence, to be in heaven forever. That's, that's helping somebody. You need to hear that. Like, that's why holiness matters, so that you can step into eternity, that God wants to make you like him here and now and forever. That's ultimately what's happening. It's heaven compatibility. All right, number two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed. Here we go. Are you with me? We want to be changed, and the gospel demands a change. Now, here's what the good news is. And you're, I already feel the weight. I already feel the weight in the room. I'm not sure about online, but I feel everybody going, oh, crap. <laughs> am, I, am I right? Like, oh, it's true. The, gospel, it, the Bible does say I have to be holy, and I'm not holy. I'm terrible. Is that not what? Is it just me? I read that, and I'm like, oh, man. Oh, man. Because I'm not holy. But here's the good news. All right, watch this. The gospel doesn't just demand that we become holy, but the gospel in and of itself, it not only creates the standard and sets the vision before you, but it actually gives you the means to get there. Watch this. The gospel derives. Now, I know I'm taking some grammatic license for all you, like, grammar nerds. Don't at me. It's derivative. The gospel derives a changed me. It actually produces a changed me. It's reproductive in its nature. It's not just that you can't stay the same. It's that if you believe this and you give your life to Jesus, you won't stay the same. Oh, that's good news. It means that he's the one that changes you. You don't have to change yourself. His grace does that. You will become like Jesus. If you believe in him and you set yourself after him and you follow him, it will make you like Jesus. The grace of God, the same grace that saves you, is the grace that transforms you. But you need that grace to transform you. I remember Dallas Willard talking about a lot of people think about grace as the thing that gets you into heaven and that it's grace. You just need grace to deal with you once and for all and it gets you into heaven. He's like, no, Christians consume grace like a 747 consumes jet fuel. You're just constantly ingesting the goodness and grace, grace of God, and that brings transformation to you. That's how it's designed to work. The gospel derives a change from you. It actually brings, it makes a change to me. Let me say it like this. Let me say it nice and clear so you can quote it online and our social media team can get this quote right. Transformation isn't something that is developed through our performance for Jesus. Transformation is not something that is developed through our performance for Jesus. Transformation is something that is derived from our proximity to Jesus. Let me say it again. Transformation isn't something that is developed through our performance for Jesus. Transformation is something that is derived through our proximity with Jesus. As you are with him, as you follow him, as you endeavor to be and remain in him, you will be changed. You can't help it. No more than my, my, my son who's now, uh, how old is my son? He's 11. <laughs> he can't stop the changes that are about to hit him. Right? Right? <laughs> it's about to happen. He can't stop it no matter what he does. It's just something that's going to happen in him and he's going to grow and he's gonna, his voice is going to drop and he's going to be looking me in the eye and he's going to be trying to wrestle his old man. I'm going to own him until he's 40. <laughs> old man strength is a thing, y'all. Don't mess with him. 
but you can't stop it. And and this is what Paul is saying in, in, in the text. He's saying, don't conform. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, let's break that down. The word transformed is the Greek word metamorphizo. It's a fun word, metamorphizo. And that's where we get the English word metamorphosis. What's a metamorphosis? It's something that is utterly changed. It's something that goes from one thing into another. This is the type of change that Paul is talking about. You should have been this, and God is going to make you this. You are going to be utterly different. Now, this morning, I I messaged Melanie to to go get the kids to do something for me. One of the weirdest requests they're ever going to get in their whole lives before they come to church. And I said, hey, kids, there is a dead butterfly on our garage floor. Could you bring it to church for me? Now, imagine he resurrected. Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) If you're like, what is this place? What happens? This was what? Once. A a caterpillar. It was a caterpillar. It did not have wings. It was not pretty like this. And then the caterpillar goes through a process and becomes something altogether different unrecognizable from what it was. This is the verb, this is the word metamorphizo, that God wants to take you from a caterpillar to a butterfly. He wants to take you from an addict to someone who is full of self-control. He wants to take you from someone who is bound and addicted to someone who is free and full of self-control. You could walk into a bar and not even have a problem. God, God wants to take you from someone who is chronically angry to someone who is gentle, full of kindness and grace. Like, how many of you know these things that God wants to do in your, inmost, in, the, in your inmost being? These are things that no matter how hard you try, you can't make yourself less angry. You can't make yourself less addicted. You can't make yourself less bitter, less anxious. These are things that require supernatural work. And that is what Jesus wants to do. When his grace gets a hold of you, he actually wants to change you. You, you should want to change. God actually wants to make a better you. Now, the, the, the lie the world tells is what? That change is something that we do on the outside, right? We, we take our pictures and we get our filters and we, we virtue signal. Like, virtue signaling has never been more beneficial. We are allies with this cause and that cause. Yeah, me too. Right? (laughs) Virtue that costs you nothing. Virtue signaling. But Jesus isn't after virtue signaling. He's after real virtue. Real virtue. Real transformation that happens in your character. It's not an external behavior modification. It's not identifying with a certain community or a certain cause. It's not dressing a certain way or associating with a certain people or getting part of this agenda or that agenda or we're standing with this group or that group. No, no. The the change that Jesus wants to do is a change through and through. He actually wants to metamorphizo. He wants to transform you into a different person, not just because you wore different clothes or you acted a certain way. And now I'm saying this because... The church needs to hear this. The church has bought the lie, the same lie the world does, that says change is something we do externally. 
we change these behaviors, we change these actions, and when we do this, then I'm a good Christian. That is not actually what the Bible says. And what happens is when we do this, when you leave, if you leave here today and say, okay, pastor says I'm supposed to be like Jesus and go, good luck. You won't even get out of the Valley Campus parking lot without cussing somebody out. And then you're like, man, back to square one. Try and be like Jesus. The, the change that he's talking about isn't external. It's something that begins on the internal. And what happens when the church becomes obsessed with externals is we get, we, we get caught in religion. Where, where we actually have to walk in this weight of activity that our character can't fulfill. That you actually don't have the character to fulfill it. And so we get caught. And I, I was thinking, I actually had my dad uh, message me this, this picture that stands on the gate of the campground that we go to. And I come from a, a, what's called a holiness background. We're actually part of that, part of that denomination as King's Church. We're, we're part of the Wesleyan Church. And that's, that's a holiness background. And there's much I'm grateful for in our, in our heritage. I mean, we've got a lot to be proud of. We were, we were early on you know, women in ministry. We, were, we, were, we actually broke away from the Methodist Church because of our position on slavery. We, we were one of the first denominations to say, hey, owning people, not cool. So I'm very proud of it. But if there's, a, if there's a thing that we've gotten into trouble with, it has been the misappropriation of the call to be holy. We've taken the call to be holy and we said, okay, go, let's be holy. And we've dedicated whole movements and whole campgrounds to the promotion of holiness. Hey, let's be these types of people. But what happens is if you just hold the standard out here, but you don't plug into the source, you're going to create hollow religion. And what happens is people live in fear because they know I'm not really that guy. They project an image and they pretend. Or they live in constant shame of the incongruity with what they say they believe and how they're presenting themselves at church. Oh, yeah, brother. But you know deep down that's not who you are. Or you don't live in fear and shame. You live in failure and frustration. And that's why a lot of people just walk away. I tried to be like Jesus. I couldn't. Yeah, no kidding. Here's the thing. None of us can be like Jesus. Do you know who can be like Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. He says, I will change you, but I'll change you from the inside out. Look what he says to the Pharisees. He confronts religion. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. You try to make it look just so. You go to church and you sit in that seat and you say the prayers and you stand and you know all the words and you lift your hands and you, you do all the externals, but I know your heart, he says. In the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, he says. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. What's he saying? He's saying transformation is derivative. Make your effort not in being like Jesus. Make your effort in being with Jesus. And as you're with Jesus, you will become like Jesus. That is it. The work. And listen, following Jesus does take effort. Nobody misinterpret my words. But the effort is abiding and staying and remaining with Jesus to the best of your ability. Because to the degree that you are with Jesus is the degree that you're like Jesus. No more, no less. And Jesus is not impressed when you, you know, a, a caterpillar go out and try to put on fake butterfly wings and like, hey, I'm a butterfly. It's like, no, no, you're not. I see a meme in my future. 
Let's think. Look what he says. He says this. This is how it works. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do, say it. So what's the job? Abide. Look what he says. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the standard is what the standard is. What we, what we get confused isn't just that God calls us to be holy. We actually mess up the means by which we become holy. And what we do, and the enemy wants us to see the standard and think, okay, I'm going to modify my behavior to become that person with all kinds of fruit. And, but we can produce no more fruit than a dead stick on the side of the road can. The fruit comes through remaining. So some of you, your action today is going to be, you hear the call, you hear the inconsistency in your life, the incongruity that you say you're a disciple, but you're conformed more to the patterns of this world. Your job is to repent and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, make me more like you. Teach me to abide. How do you abide? We don't have time to teach on disciplines today, but you know, spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, devotion, Coming to church, these things, these things produce the fruit. That's how we abide. Transformation is derivative. Change is derivative. When you get near Jesus, you can't help but change. That's some good news. So some of you don't need to feel the weight of responsibility to be like Jesus. You just need to feel an urgency to get with Jesus. Let me say that again. Don't just feel the weight of responsibility to be like Jesus. Interpret that as an urgency to get with Jesus. Say hello to him in the morning. Listen to him. Read his word. Obey him. When he tells you to do something, do it. These are the things that produce fruit. That's how you remain. Let me say it like this. I'm almost done. Number three. Just a second. My cue. Let's do this. Oh, where was it? Oh, I had a big... No, it's not there. Oh, well. Let me just read it. We will become more like Jesus the more we are with Jesus. Last thought. Last thought. Don't miss that, though. I've kind of fumbled that landing. Do not leave this day, whether you're at West, Halifax, online, here. Don't leave here saying, I just need to modify my behavior. That is a lie. It's a lie the world believes, and it's a lie that has no business in the church. You don't modify your behavior. You shift and you seek Jesus. That's it. Change is a byproduct. Transformation is a byproduct. You won't be able to help it. Look, last thought. Last thought. So he says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this inside out, change the way you think, change your heart. Transformation begins on the inside. How many of you know that? Like until, until you have a change of mind and a change of heart, your externals will, will not change. Smokers know this. 
right? Until you find something you love more than nicotine, you can put all the pictures in the world, all those teeth in the world on the front of those things. You're like, yeah, I still love it, <laughs> right? Right? Some of you are like, you're like, yeah, smokers, and you're, you do it with Cheetos, so, <laughs> right? So until you have a change of mind, right? Like I, I, I remember the, the, the chubby, chubby Brent crisis of 2016, and I was like, you know what? Enough's enough. And I was like, I am changing my behavior because I had a change of mind. I stepped on a scale and I was like, whoa, Homer, towel rack. Anybody remember that? And then it, I changed my mind in that moment. And that's what did it. And then that, that gave me the fuel to change my behavior. Now watch this. Once you change your mind and transformation begins to take root, I love this. And I just want, I want to set this up as like the most beautiful goal. Like I just begin to imagine. Then you, who? You. Everyone say me. Me. You will be able to test and approve. Uh, another translation says to know. And what, what know means isn't just cognitive. Like it says in Genesis, and Adam knew his wife. What does that mean? Ask your parents. It's experiential. It's, a, it's an intimate no. It's, it's, some, it's, 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 your, it's your whole being. It's not just something you, you know about. It's something you've experienced. That's what this word test and approve. It's, it's actually going to be your experience. You will be able to know and walk in and understand and experience God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, as you offer your body as a living sacrifice, as you pursue Jesus, and you let him change your mind, not according to the patterns of this world, but to the word, you let him be your truth, and you identify yourself with him, and you align yourself with him, and you take up his cause, and you hear his invitation to carry your cross in your pursuit of him who carried a cross for you, as you follow him, you will be transformed, and you will walk like he walks, talk like he talks, do like he does, see what he does, think how he does, hear his voice. You will be like Jesus. And let Holy Spirit, just let that register in our hearts, in our imaginations even. We can be like him. He wants to make you like him. He wants to absolutely overwhelm your world so that you see with his eyes, you think with his thoughts, you interpret, you understand through him. Everything you do is just informed by and fueled by Jesus, his presence, his goodness, his grace, his truth, everything. It becomes your whole life experience. And you won't be able to even remove it. Like the more you integrate yourself with Jesus, the old self just keeps dying off. And your mind is renewed. I, I felt that in the last year. Like, how many are just, like, overwhelmed by, you know, the news, social media, this issue, this cause, that cause, and this problem, and that problem? And I've noticed, though, every time I see something online or on the news, I'm like, you know what? Jesus is the answer for that. 
Like everything. Problems in government. Like, you know why government fails? Because people need Jesus. You know, problems in identity. Like, you know why people are struggling with their identity so much? They need Jesus. Problems in relationship. You know, the only thing that can unify people over their selfishness and individualism is Jesus. It's like I start to see Jesus in and for and through everything. Like he just becomes this lens by which you walk and live and see everything. Gospel glasses, as it were. And you can't unsee it. And that we become like him. I love this quote C.S. Lewis said. The gospel, sorry, the gospel directs a changed me. Look what C.S. Lewis says. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It directs my whole life. Jesus directs my whole life. He becomes my vision. He's the vision I have of my past. I no longer see myself as my mistakes. I see his grace over my past. He directs my present. His his word is a lamp unto my feet. How do I know my next step? It's according to his word. He directs my values. My values aren't according to the patterns of this world. They're according to his word. He he directs my vision of the future. Do I know what tomorrow holds? No, but I know in the end it's all going to be good. He's leading me in triumphal procession. He becomes my perspective. This is what Paul means. He's going to change everything. And I just felt today, I felt like the Spirit of God wants to raise a standard in the church. I was thinking about it like, think about somebody you admire. Maybe a celebrity you think is really, really pretty or something, or maybe... Uh, an athlete, LeBron James, if you're into sports, or maybe you're a business person, you're like, man, if I could just like make moves like Bezos. Whoever like is this high standard of human achievement for you. And imagine like you admire them and they came and they spent time with you and you're like, hey, I could teach you to do what I do. That would blow your mind, wouldn't it? Like I can be like Bezos. I can be like Kim Kardashian. No, I'm just, whoever, who's your person you admire? It's incredible that in the church, we can get enticed by the glory of humanity, by like patterns of this world and the highest and best that humanity has to offer. I could play basketball like LeBron. And Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, And Lord of Lords, the one who is all powerful, through whose voice the heavens and the earth were created, who has intimate knowledge of physics and chemistry and biology and sociology and demography and geography. He knows everything. He says, Come and follow me and be like me. You can be. Like Jesus. Does that not like astound you a little bit? He calls us to be like him, full of mercy, full of grace. 
full of perspective, full of intelligence and wisdom that doesn't come from man, full of authority that is spiritual, that supersedes and uproots human authority, full of grace, full of mercy, full of love, full of justice, full of kindness, full of peace, full of gentleness. We can be like him. Can we just set that as our goal? And here's the crazy thing. He not only becomes the vision and the goal and the standard that we get to be like, but he's the means by which we get there. The author of Hebrews says, since we have this great cloud or crowd of witnesses, let us throw off all the sin that entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on, say his name, the author, the beginner, and the perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work in you will bring it on to completion. C.S. Lewis once said, if you could see the end result of your following Jesus, if you could see, like, like Brent, if Jesus has changed you this much in following him for a couple decades, imagine a couple millennia. He said, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship yourself if you saw the glory. See, Paul says, as we behold his glory, he is transforming us from glory to ever-increasing glory. So can I just set before you today that the greatest calling and the greatest achievement and the greatest opportunity that is before you is to become like Jesus. As for me, I want to become like Jesus. As for my house, I want us to become like Jesus. What do I want for my sons? More than I want them to be successful in this world, more than I want them to earn money and be kind, I want them to be like Jesus. I want my daughter to be like Jesus. I want my household to be like Jesus. What do I want King's Church to be? Do I want us to be a lot of people that associate with Christianity? No, I want thousands of people who are like Jesus, walking and moving and living and touching and going through Atlanta, Canada. Imagine you like Jesus, what that would do in your marriage, in your home, with your relationships, with your family, at your work. You just become more like Jesus. It's not going to be overnight. It'll be little by little, but let's put that vision in our hearts. I'm going to ask you to stand wherever you are. I'm going to pray and we'll be done. I wasn't really sure how to end today. I felt like it's complicated because there's some of you that are online. There's some of you that are watching in different rooms, West and Charlottetown, Halifax. But I feel like this type of call deserves a response. The gospel deserves a response. And I wonder if the altar needs to be open. Now, in the past, we used to have these little stands you can come and kneel at. They're not there anymore, but that's not really the point. The point is offering and presenting yourself before the Lord. And I want to pray for us in just a minute, but I, I just feel like there's God, that the Spirit of God is putting his finger on some of you and saying, you have been conforming to the patterns of this world. You have cheapened my grace. Come and receive a fresh vision and a fresh touch by my grace today. Be reset and renewed. Let me wash away your transgressions. Let me create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit in you. And I felt like the Lord just wants to reset that connection. That there's been a severing. Maybe it's been because of just life. Maybe it's just, just time. But you aren't abiding. And I feel like the Lord wanted to create a point of connection today. And so I'm going to pray. And I want to invite you 
just in this moment, I'm not going to drag it on, but if there's anybody that just feels like, you know what, that's me. I've been conforming to the pattern of this world. I feel like God is calling me to be transformed, and I'm offering myself to him. I need his grace to change. I'm going to invite you to come forward and just kneel down, and I'm going to pray for you. You can do it at West. You can kneel down in your living room. Come on right now. We don't have much time. Who's God calling? Awesome. Altar's open. I feel the Spirit. The Spirit is putting His finger on some people. Oh, wait. It's okay. We're just going to say a fresh prayer of renewal over you. Just a refreshing. Some of you are right now feeling condemned. We just reject that in Jesus' name. Wherever you are, it's not condemnation. This is invitation. Hear the invitation. A fresh touch and a fresh connection. This is a reset to abide in him. Awesome, everybody. All right, let's open our hands to receive and let's just, let's just pray right now for a fresh connection. It's not too late for some of you. I think, feel like there's some people that still need to come. And let's just ask the Holy Spirit to reconnect us. So Father, we thank you for this truth today. We thank you for the invitation that we can be like you. Oh, to be like Jesus. And God, right now, we just repent, Lord, for all the ways, God, for all the ways that my life does not line up with what I say I believe. And God, we just turn back and we say, we first and foremost, God, I ask for a fresh revelation over us that we would see right now how high and how deep and how wide is the love of Christ Jesus that we would be enraptured by the goodness of God, that we would have a fresh vision, not only of your holiness and our wretchedness, but your grace to come in and bring restoration and healing. So Father, I pray for a fresh vision right now over your church. Give us a fresh vision. You're bigger than we thought you were. You're better than we thought you were. You're greater and holier than we thought you were. Give us a higher vision. Would the knowledge of God burst in our minds right now? Would it knock over every idol that we've set up? Would it topple idols right now? Just a fresh vision of a holy God. And now, Lord, would we feel your touch? We thank you for grace. That twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved. Father, I thank you for every person that has respond. I just speak a fresh touch over them. Anybody under the sound of my voice that needs a fresh touch, just Lord, would you reconnect us right now? Reconnect our hearts, not our actions. Reconnect our hearts first, Lord. The inside of the cup. Wash the inside of the cup today, we pray. Fresh grace over my brothers and sisters right now in Jesus' name. Grace that cleanses. Grace that restores. Grace that brings renewal. Grace that brings a fresh start, Lord. Grace that washes away mistakes and sets up a new standard and says, this is the way, walk in it. And Father, I pray right now, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, even over this summer, as we step into the summer months, God, I pray for dreams and visions and words and encounters in your people in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask for fresh encounter. Lord, would our roots go deeper in you? Let us be rooted in you, God, that we would bear much fruit. And we pray this as we offer our bodies to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen.